Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Today we are joined by Olivia Solomon, a junior at the University of Central Florida and a writing and rhetoric and political science major. Olivia has demonstrated a passion for political activism as collaborating member of March for Our Lives, as well as several published op-eds in both the Orlando Sentinel and the Tallahassee Democrat, integrating her writing skills into a tool to effect change. She joins us today to discuss how writing allows a voice and arguments we are passionate about, as well as delving into her process from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here today, Olivia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight. So we were talking a little bit off mic. You said that you came into UCF recently. Did you take the first year writing classes here at UCF? I did. Okay. And what was your experience um, coming into those classes in terms of learning about writing um, beyond what you'd known before in like, let's say high school? Yeah, so it was really like, kind of when you get into college writing, it was like, oh, break all the rules you were ever taught in high school. Uh, Grammar, I mean, you know, it matters, but it's not like super picky. Write run-on sentences, give us everything you have, versus something that like I think everyone is very scared of in like, you know, high school English AP classes of um, being so technical and worried about getting points taken off on that. And it was really just give us your story and we'll fix it later. Now, did you come into UCF knowing that you wanted to go into writing and rhetoric as well as political science as a dual major? Or was this a journey that was a little more meandering? So I knew I wanted to do political science and I came in as political science and journalism because I was on my student newspaper in high school and I thought that is what I wanted to do. But then I realized that more um, with seeing the writing and rhetoric program that I'm not as much like a multimedia person, but just purely writing is what I love. And that was where I was able to just focus on that. Okay. So what was the um, what was the first class that you took in the department aside from composition? So you kind of were in the composition classes. You saw this kind of different approach to, to writing uh, from something that you were used to before. Do you remember what that first sort of class was or, or seeing the class? Uh, what intrigued you about the writing and rhetoric department? Yeah. So seeing that like the list of options that there were so many classes that like it was like, you know, uh, civil issues and rhetoric and um, really the class that changed everything for me was um, writing for social change where I saw that I would write opinion pieces before and about like uh, different things that I cared about in my activism but this was really showed me like I could take this and use writing to change try and create positive change within the community. And that course was with um, Professor Pompos Mansfield. Yes yeah that was one of my favorite classes I've taken at UCF and it was really I we there was a very small class, so we were all able to like you know work together and see. Um, we all had very similar like mindsets of um, issues and just like how we wanted to use writing to help you know change the world. And it was interesting to see how um, it was 
obviously a class, so you know there was work, but it was more like we were all very happy to do it. We were excited about the the chances to pick a uh, um, social issue and write about it, explain the story, uh, do research on it, because it's all it was all something we were very passionate about. And being in that setting with other kids that share that with you is just um, very empowering. You mentioned that you were, I think, on your high school newspaper, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So was there any shift in perspective from the idea of what it was to be a journalist versus writing for social change? Was it continuing on a path that you already saw yourself on or did you see yourself, um, you know, broadening your perspectives in any way? Um, What was that like in, in entering into that class from your prior experiences? Yeah. So being in my high school newspaper, we had an opinion section and that was like my favorite thing ever. So I would write like, you know, unbiased news stories and stuff. But then when I would get to the opinion section, I would that was like where I um, shined. And like it was funny because my junior year of high school, my advisor was like, maybe you should like let some other people write in the opinion section. Let's take a break for a second. I was like, oh, okay. And like, I think what I saw is I've I've always had very strong opinions. I've always been very vocal about them. Um, And with journalism, Obviously, being unbiased is very important. I still do that with, like, you know, facts and when I'm explaining an issue. But what I saw most was shifting from um, the idea of wanting to be a journalist to more political activism and policy writing. And I want to be like speech writing for like um, a congressional uh, candidate or someone in Congress eventually was that instead of, you know, writing about what was happening and just showcasing all the change that was happening in the world around me, I wanted to be the one to make that change and the one to push that forward rather than to be sitting there and writing about it, which is super important to inform people. It's just not where I saw myself anymore. How do you approach um, such an undertaking? You see something, it lights a fire within you. And then you say, all right, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm dissatisfied with the state of the world around me. I want to I want to spark a change. How do you approach then the way that you would begin to write yourself into that change? So I think I really, ironically, it comes almost from a pa- place of anger where I'll sit down with all my thoughts and I'll just type something. It Sometimes it, it's usually like two o'clock in the morning when I do this and I'm just really angry. I've read something or I have um, I do participate in a lot of activism. I'll be doing protests and different things and I won't see change going the way I want it to. So I'll sit down and kind of just put all my thoughts onto the paper, almost like, you know, like a word vomit. And then I'll go back and edit everything from there. But from starting from that place of like really strong passion and anger is where I'm able to like cut it down and very um and make it um digestible to people to to see the need for change but getting from that place of passion is where I start and there's there's a difference between seeing the need for change and turning it into something actionable as well um what type of consideration do you take then like if you were to say say um you were involved in the um March for Our Lives, you were involved collaborating and rewriting some policy. Am I correct? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. And then, um, you know, maybe how you take that approach in terms of writing for change specifically, as opposed to just writing to um, raise awareness. Yeah. So um, I've been involved in March for Our Lives since the beginning of its creation in 2018. I was 15 years old um, and lived very close to Parkland when um, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting started at, or occurred. And um really, it changed everything for me. I was very uh, much like a politically aware kid. I was always, my family was very um, active in the community. And like, my parents always taught me, if you see something you don't like, and unjust, it's your job to change it. And, um, 
but that really kickstarted seeing that moment. I was like, okay, my friends are being shot at school. I had very close friends I went to sleepaway camp with who were texting me as they were hiding in a closet. And that really opened my eyes that I can't sit around anymore. And um, it's up to me and our generation to create change. So from there, I was really, I've been involved with them since I was able to sit on a, a state board seat, work with the national, um, the people at the national level. And when we're talking about policy, uh, I was able to like help um, write ideas and participate in things on how we want to change our communities and um, talking about community safety, attacking gun violence from its roots, like poverty and political apathy and different things like that, rather than just looking at the issue of guns, because there's so many um, intersectional ideas there that uh, cause this epidemic. Yeah, I, I want to ask a question about the document. And the document is called It Ends With Us, A Plan to Reimagine Public Safety mm -hmm. uh, is the document that, that you collaborated with. And um, I took a look at it, and, and it's 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 well thought out. And, and your discussion about your your motivation um, and your, you know, your your anger and your need to, to change, want to change things. Um, I'm curious in reading a document like that, how does how do you see those two things, as you said, kind of intersecting the, the sort of motivation to change things um, and then also the strategy to change things? Because I think, you know, from a rhetorical standpoint, those are two kind of uh, interesting things to combine together. And I think they're both necessary, right? That passion. But then, you know, when you read the document, it's also a very well sort of thought out plan, right? With with recommendations, with action steps, uh, and things like that. So I was wondering if, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, for, for you and your experience collaborating and writing, how those things kind of form together. Yeah. So um, with that, I saw it as more of like a roadmap for this. And I think when we look at different um, movements, especially the civil rights movement, you need to focus on an idea and tell people and the government, and that's how you get things across, is this is what we need to do and give very clear-cut ideas. And, you know, that's definitely something that takes a long time. And um, it's why change is very slow and sometimes agonizing. And um, But by getting step-by-step -step things done and showing that this is what we want now, this is what we need to do now, it's how... Um, we get to that change because just calling for a collective demand of things and um, vague wording is um, really how a lot of movements are over, um, overlooked and not taken seriously. So um, when I analyzed that document, seeing that, it really opened my eyes um, up to like, okay, so if I'm going to continue writing like this, if I want to get into policy writing, I need to make it very clear cut and show that this is what we need and this is why we need it and we need it now. And um, taking those steps to get there is how you um, create change. And I've um, interned in a legislative office of uh, Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith. He is the state legislator um, for UCF and working with him and getting a sense of policy. And I've been able to, um, you know, write bill analysis for him and get it like hands on experience in uh, the legislative system is shown that like, well, working with a Democrat and also in Florida, it's very much on the defensive always and attack, especially with the uh, the last um, session that we're com coming out of and um, seeing these it's always kind of a constant uphill battle and it's it's very exhausting, but little by little showing that we're not giving up on this fight and this is what we want now, this is what we want next, this is the future that we imagine is um, kind of how I look at my writing and fighting for the change throughout that. I often talk to my students in terms of creating an argument and they have to approach it in terms of thinking about counter arguments. It shows that you're um, a thoughtful 
researcher, you know, that you almost think of it in terms of asking for permission for something that you think you're going to be denied. Like if, you know, you're a kid and you want to get a puppy and you know that your parents are going to say, well, no, because who's going to walk it or who's going to feed it? And you're like, well, no, I have a plan. And, you know, before I go to school, I can walk it at seven o'clock. And then when I get home at three o'clock, I can walk it again. And then, you know, I will feed it at this time. And you kind of have to you 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 spend the time preparing yourself thinking these are all of the objections that I'm going to come up against. And these are my I'm going to I'm going to do the work ahead of time to come up again, come up with a plan to counter those arguments. So when you're dealing with something that is as multifaceted as some of these arguments that you are writing about, in particular, um, let's just stick with the uh, March for Our Lives issue. What kind of work as a collaborator is done to try to um, process what you might come up against in terms of counter argument. Is that a part of the process when you're drafting these documents? And what does that look like? Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, it's researching and reading article, other articles and reading other opinions and um, staying up to date on everything happening. But it's also um, being active in the community, being there, not just looking on the sidelines. Like I'm my friends and roommates joke that I'm never home and I'm either in class or at a protest and I'm constantly in the streets fighting the battle um, with other people uplifting other minorities that I try to um, really get like a hands-on experience. And not only do I feel that I'm helping to create change through that, but I'm able to see the, um, you know, the firsthand arguments and feedback and things we're getting there and take that into my writing and consider it. Because, uh, you know, when you're at a protest, you hear all the sides of it. You see counter protesters, you see everything. And from looking at that perspective, and in addition to like, you know, reading other articles from other perspectives, um, you really see both sides and are able to go in to your argument with saying, okay, I know what you're saying already. And this is what I reply to it. And this is why you're wrong. And this is what we need to do in order to change that. I feel like these days it's also more difficult than ever to vet our arguments. So what is that like as someone who's continually contributing to um, activism in terms of vetting news sources as well as counter arguments? Yeah, so I definitely try to be very careful with my sources, use, you know, like um, well-established things like New York Times, Washington Post, or like uh, data, pure data is very hard to, well, often hard to dispute. (laughs) And um, so things like, you know, um, BBC is more uh, unbiased where I would get there. And I would look where like where they're getting their data from or NPR and where they're getting their statistics from looking at through government documents and getting the statistics and things like that. Um, I'll use sources and then look at the sources that they use to go back to um, government surveys are often where um, I look a lot. I definitely in the terms of the fight for gun violence, the CDC um, is I get a lot of my statistics and my arguments from there. Okay. I was going to ask about the um, this document that you analyzed as part of your writing for social change course. Right. Um, and then this was also part of the presentation that you did at mm-hmm. the, the most recent UCF uh, writing fest. Um uh, where you presented, I, I was at the uh, presentation, the the virtual presentation via Zoom, where you talked about it was this document, correct? Yeah. The one that you that you yeah, analyzed. It was this so, one. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about 
what the experience was like presenting, you know, your your analysis and your work on this paper at the UCF Writing Fest, and then what it was kind of like for you to to translate it from kind of a, a, an analysis that you wrote in class to a presentation that you gave. Yeah, so it was definitely um, giving a presentation. I was more nervous. Um, you kind of you're there. You say whatever you say is what sticks. And um, I always say that I'm a better writer than I am a talker. And I've definitely gotten better at that as I've gotten more involved in activism and done speeches at protests and different things. But um, with writing, it's really always been where I can shine and edit and um, you know make sure everything's perfect. And I'm definitely a perfectionist in that way. And I get nervous when, you know, when I'm talking and presenting in that setting and it's like, oh, if you stutter, that's what happens. That's, it's there, it sticks if you stumble. Um, and I try not to focus on that as much, but uh, definitely, you know, studying my analysis and just reading and reminding myself of the points, especially because there's a little time between when I wrote the paper and when I uh, presented it, just refreshing myself and, and just kind of assuring myself of, I know this, I wrote this, this is, stuff that I'm very passionate about, whatever I say is going to be how I feel. There are times when um, statistics can lack passion. So how do you bring passion about to something that could maybe seem just strictly um, quantitative? Yeah, so I definitely try to humanize them and to bring it. And a lot of the work I um, I do and in my writing in my last piece when I wrote about, you know, anti-Semitism and um, uh, especially even gun violence is when you take the statistics and you turn them into human lives. These percentages, these amount of people, a particular statistic that always stuck with me is um, around 106 people roughly um, die every single day in America because of gun violence. And that's thinking of your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones. And those people have that community around them and taking them out of that statistic and putting a face to that. And especially with anti-Semitism as a member of the Jewish community and seeing like, these are communities just like ours. These are people just like us. The the recent attack we heard in the news, that is a, a community that has just been changed forever. Yeah, I wanted to ask a follow up question about that. Um, the, it was a guest columnist piece in the Orlando Sentinel called I Want to Fight Anti-Semitism, But I Can't Do It Alone. And so w- when I read that one, uh, I, I think, again, your description of, of how you sort of try and humanize it um, a- as a way to reach people it definitely comes through in that piece. And so it, it made me think of when you when you were doing that, right, when you were making those appeals, like what is it that you imagine about the audience, um, what will be effective, what they need to hear, um, how do you combine, you know, talking about an issue or problem, as Megan said, from, from a sort of data analysis point of view where the st- statistics bear out that this is, you know, uh, an issue that's happening in society and then sort of as a as a columnist um really trying to reach that that audience or that person and so i'm just curious like who is that for you like wh- what do you sort of imagine as a way to sort of appeal to to your audience yeah so i always try to keep in mind that the people who strongly disagree with you and read your piece going in with a negative attitude you're probably not going to change their minds but if you can give them a little get them to to give a little sympathy in the end is always, you know, sometimes the end goal. And by sharing a story, um, my story with anti-Semitism and how I I grew up in a pretty um, Jewish community and I never really experienced this until I got to college and I'd see, you know, posters on campus with swastikas, uh, different things, neo-Nazis down the street from campus, things like that. When you're 
telling them how you feel and saying, this is affecting me. This is what it's doing to me and my community. It By taking the statistics and the hard facts and everything and, you know, the generalized news stories that you hear and giving it a personal story or telling a personal story of someone else. And um, I think that's definitely where I've always come from my writing is the emotional side of when I was little, my parents would always joke that I loved to, to make up stories and tell stories. And that's how I really got into writing as like in elementary school, I would uh, write, you know, narratives and things like that. And as I got older, I said, oh, I could take, you know, the stories of real people and because they're just as interesting and show this is how we need, we need to make change because of this. We need to make change because this is happening. And connecting back to, to gun violence, something that really, you know, I definitely look at in this movement is um, an organization called Change the Ref. And it was um, established by um, the victim of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, one of them. Um, his name is Joaquin Oliver. His parents started this um, organization after he was murdered. And um, it's talking about their son and their stories and they'll put videos of him from when they're little and say our child is no longer with us because of gun violence because of this epidemic in America and put a face to that and they um his dad often uses um art as a uh, form of activism and he'll put paintings and pictures of his son and his work and it shows this was a child this was a 17 year old or 18 I'm not positive of his age when he passed but um say this was someone who had so much potential. This is the story, putting a story to it and telling, you know, their dreams, sharing his tweets that he uh, wrote before, uh, pictures, Instagram posts and saying like, wow, this was a person just like me. This is, he is not just a statistic. He has a life. He um, has people who care about him. And I think I try to do that in all of my um, stories and um, op-eds and opinions that I write because um, it's, all these policies are people policies and they um, the things that are happening in our government are affecting real people every single day. And to go and zero in on how this is really affecting one person's life and millions other because of it, um, I think really creates empathy and allows people to see. And surely you could still disagree with everything that I re write and you could still say, well, this really isn't an issue, but it's harder to do that when you see how how many people it's hurt or how many people it's affected. In my mind, there would be a very different composing process from reading something that at two o'clock in the morning um, inspires you to, uh, you know, to draft a response versus working collaboratively to write policy. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about the differences, if there are any for you, in terms of your composing process when you're writing for such different purposes. The purposes actually are, are very similar. So maybe it's just the audience is a little bit different when it comes to those types of writing. Does your writing process differ at all in those situations? I think it all comes from the place of wanting to create change, but it definitely differs in the way of I try to stay, uh, keep less keep more emotion in the opinions I'm writing rather than the policy because um, within the government and within those things, they'll often say, you know, this is too emotionally charged. We can't look at this. This isn't, which I think is redundant in a way because it's affecting people. But, um, you know, I'll use specific language that I wouldn't normally use in an op-ed. I'll make it, there's definitely more of a technical style to it that I'll go about and look at like different references than rather just, you know, throwing in, um, the anger and the emotion and then, you know, shaping it from there. It stems from the same place, but it's a, a very different writing process. And, and the way you know who you're giving it to, you know, you're giving it to lawmakers and even certain ones if you're targeting them and um, 
especially in Florida, a lot of conservative white men and looking at that. And they'll look at these opinions and say, no, that's emotionally charged. We can't do this. That's not necessary. And giving them statistics and facts is often more a hard, clear cut way to give them the information within the policy and say, this is exactly what we need to do within like political terms. And, um, you know, they could just as easily turn it away, but it's harder for them to do that when they're looking at it in that realm. How has your journey um, continued from Professor Pompos Mansfield's class, um, which was writing for social change, and now you're currently taking writing with communities and nonprofits with Professor yeah. Calkins? Talk to us a little bit about what your work is like in that course. Yeah, so uh, within um, writing for social change, it definitely was like, oh, I could take my writing and I could try to get it published. I could use this. And I did it once or twice before, but it definitely inspired me to do more so. And now in um, writing for communities and nonprofits, we really focus on like grant writing, which I think is really interesting, and um, how to use writing to propel um, organizations and different things within communities. So it's less so um, it definitely has, you know, the emotional and opinion aspect um, especially when you're working with a uh, nonprofit that you has a mission you really care about. But um, it's kind of a way to push these organizations forward and help get them money and help them get the resources they need. So it's looking from the more business technical side of taking writing and using it to push um, an agenda or um, change. How does grant writing fact figure on this on the yardstick if you had op-eds at one end and maybe um, writing political policy on another how does grant writing fit in rhetorically in terms of audience and purpose and maybe the type of language you would use how does that how does that feel to you as a writer so I feel like it kind of takes it to and combines it and it's almost in the middle of that spectrum and the way that it's you can show emotion not maybe not too much you can provide a uh a story and you can um, give a little information of the background, but it's very much in the way that it's not too long. It just gives a little bit of why we're doing this, the mission, and then directly in the in the name in the way of policy does um, saying, "I'm answering your question. This is what we need. This is why we need it. Uh, this is what we'll use it for." And the technical um, kind of way of writing that, but also saying, "But this is our mission, and this is why we need it, and this is what the." If you give us this money, this is what you would be doing, and this is why you should do it. So, kind of taking that emotional aspect and being turning it into, but this is why you should, and this is the things we are doing, and this is what we are doing with the money you are giving us. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really great description of grant writing because I think you know, in relation to things that you've mentioned here, it is a combination of both the the motivation. Um, and the plan, right? In a grant, the plan of what you're going to use the resources for, what you plan to do, uh, all, all the activities, uh, materials, resources, all those things, you know, need to be uh, accounted for and, and justified. So it's it's part persuasion and then part, you know, planning and, and strategy. Um, when you imagine uh, uh, writing a grant or proposing a grant or, or maybe you have some of those ideas generating or have generated them already, what what are some of those uh, either programs or or grants that that you think about or, or you you are maybe planning for? Yeah, so um, we've in um, writing for social not writing for social change within um, the class of uh, 
writing for communities and nonprofits, we've been, some of our projects are, oh, like we work with Page 15, which is um, a nonprofit in um, Orlando, which works with um, um, underserved youth and it's a literacy program. And um, I mean, it's so much more than that, but that is kind of just like the the rough description. And um, so looking at these like community-based organizations and how this we started out as writing for them. And now I'm kind of looking forward and it's like, oh, what are other organizations I care about? What are other um, community-based things that um, can really change? And I think that's something that's really helped me with this was um, I was a Girl Scout for 13 years from kindergarten to when I graduated high school. And um, I was always told that when we do projects with them, what is an issue within your community and how are you going to fix it? And I think with grant writing and with the things that I hope to do in the future is I always go back to the community, to the local people and what they need and what they want. And that's how you take it uh, statewide or national for an issue and fight for it by looking at what is actually needed and not what is just talked about and in the media, because sometimes it's very different from what a community actually needs. What kind of writing inspires you? So definitely I, you know, I'll read a lot of political memoirs or a lot of, um, you know, things on um, stories of like immigration and different stories of like books and people, the struggle within America and within um, really just like whether it's historical fiction or it's a, a struggle that people are facing now. And the story. So personal stories is definitely something that really inspires me and something I look at my for my writing and hope to inspire other people with. And just seeing, you know, the human side of issues and humanizing everything. Have there been any that have stood out in particular to you that have kind of shaped you formatively in, in this in this path that you're on? Yeah, for sure. Um, I can't think of a specific like, you know, title off the top of my head. But, um, you know, like I said, there are stories of that pe- authors will take the stories of people like coming across the border and the struggle and they'll sit with them and they'll interview them and they'll follow them in their lives for weeks and then write the story off of their lives from there. And just showing the everyday things that we take for granted and we struggle with and they struggle with that we don't even realize. And so opening up that issue. And I think also something that is like historically always stuck with me is, you know, the diary of Anne Frank is something that really reading that in, you know, elementary and middle school um, was something that opened my eyes because you see all these issues that they're addressing and that this girl is addressing within her diary without really realizing it. And, um, you know, just being someone who is Jewish and had ancestors in that position and had family members who didn't make it out much like Anne Frank and um, seeing the change that just that writing creates and it wasn't even intended to do that. Hmm. I ask only because I, I believe it's E. Shelley Reed says, um, be a greedy reader. That's her advice to writers is be a greedy reader. And for someone who write as yourself, writes a lot in response to other writing, I was curious if there were particular, you know, even news sources that you go to a lot as, as a standby or even, you know, if there are particular blogs or TikToks or anything that you are like is your go to in terms of sources for information that continually inspire you or even inspire you to respond in a way that, you know, is like a call to action. Yeah. So I definitely always see myself going back to, you know, Time Magazine or Washington Post in the way that they take stories and they will give you the facts. And I think, you know, Time Magazine kind of does this more and telling a personal story in the way that, you know, I wish I could do that one day. And um, Washington Post 
often, you know, they'll tackle policy and different um, political issues going on, but they'll also take personal stories and they'll they'll look at the human side of issues. And that's something that, you know, reading that growing up and always looking at their articles definitely inspired me to kind of take that route in writing. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean as, as someone that, that enjoys that kind of long-form journalism where they are telling a human story, but also, you know, pointing at an issue uh, and things like that, but um, but not something that's like a quick read or or, or meant to be just sort of a, a quick delivery of, of facts or, or things going on. It's more pieces that are meant for us as audiences to connect with people and things going on, you know, because of the power of those stories. And, and it makes me, you know, want to ask you a little bit more about the opinion piece that you had on the Tallahassee Democrat uh, titled The Don't Say Gay Bill Will, Will Hurt Families Like Mine, because that one is, you know, essentially like your family's story, right? You, yeah. you, you use those stories uh, to, to make a point and to affect an audience. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you know, uh, um, how that came up. Um, you know, there, there's the, the great first, I can't remember exactly what that was. I was just going to say, no one can pick on my siblings, but me or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was going to fangirl for a second and say, I loved that opening. (laughs) I was not, I was not expecting it. I think was, it was so fantastic. You read the the headline and then you said the first line and it really captures you. Right. It's it's very, yeah, it captures you. It's very sort of, you know, uh, disarming to any sort of, you know, thing that you might bring to it as an audience. It just, you know, sort of, gets gets that out of the way real quick. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about yeah. that and and using your family stories and and what those mean to you uh, uh, and and what it, the piece meant to them as well. Exactly. Yeah. So um I have a very I like to say rainbow family. My older sister is um lesbian and then her and her wife are actually trying to start a family now. My younger brother is gender nonconforming, which means he um you know breaks the stereotypes of gender. He presents completely female, but he identifies as male. And um you know just growing up with that and seeing the responses he gets, seeing, you know, the acceptance he has in his elementary school, but he's currently in fifth grade. And middle school is really hard for everyone, especially, you know, when you're a boy in a dress. And um, seeing this bill and looking at it and saying, this is hurting my family. My sister actually ended up um, quitting teaching after four years because um, of a lot of reasons, but this bill being one of the final pushes and seeing like, you know, the homophobia within um schools already and the fact that we have lawmakers coming out and saying um if you support if you don't support this bill you are a pedophile you're this is an anti-grooming bill when it so clearly isn't and just like looking at that language and i've read the bill so many times and it has a direct part where it says you are no it stops people from talking about um gender identity and sexual orientation and i don't think either of those topics if talked about in an appropriate manner for the age that you're explaining it to is taboo or um, should be at least or is sexual in any way. And it goes back to this trope of, you know, in the 70s and 80s of um, being gay, being something sexualized and demonized and not okay. And, you know, growing up very close and within the, the LGBT community, I see these are people, these are lives you're changing. And, you know, when I started that, I joke, you know, I love my siblings and I would do anything for them. But we constantly fight. And, you know, it's like, no, you're not allowed to be mean to my sister, but no, she cannot borrow my sweater. Um, Like that kind of thing. And it's very, I think, relatable to everyone with siblings is, you know, I'll fight for them and I will absolutely stand up to anyone who is mean to them, but I'll also, you know, yell at them and be mean to them back, but in a completely different way. And only I'm allowed to get away with that. And um, 
you know, seeing this bill is hurting so many children and it's directly hurting my brother. He's not in the age range, they say, of, you know, kindergarten through third grade anymore. But it has such vague implications that when he corrects a teacher on his pronouns, are they allowed to dismiss it? When he explains to people that he is gender nonconforming and this is who he is, are they are teachers going to stop him and say, no, 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 we don't talk about that here. And um, that's just something that, you know, bothers me and hurts me as a sister. And, you know, we may not always get along. We definitely fight a lot, my little brother and I. But, you know, I love him and no one is allowed to bully him or tell him that he is not good enough. And I see, you know, the confidence he has. And it just scares me looking at statistics of um, kids who obviously family acceptance is a huge thing, but some of them who have family acceptance, but just don't in the other in the outside world. And it really gives me hope of seeing um older people who are like him and in the queer community walk out and be okay and be safe and happy. And that's just what I want for my siblings. And I think, you know, everybody wants that for their family. And this bill is directly attacking my family, so many families across Florida and other states where they are doing um, things like this. Um, my family is very involved in activism in the queer community. And we have, we know a family in Texas who they're, the current bill about um, that would take parents who give gender affirming care to their children and open up a case in um, child services under child abuse for that. And they are literally uh, hiding and scared that their children is going to be, their child is going to be taken away from them because they support them, because they give them the care that they need. And that is ultimately life saving. And um, so different things like that. And, you know, without a doubt, we'll have bills like that coming next year and in the sessions to follow as, you know, legislators, especially in Florida and um, Republicans have kind of taken attack on queer kids and youth and used them to their advantage and um, taken everything from them. And just seeing that with my family is so heartbreaking and makes me so angry. In my piece, I mentioned I um, I do go to Tallahassee a, a little bit to, like you know, lobby and to speak on different things I'm passionate about. But um I took off all my classes for the day. I took a bus at four o'clock in the morning to go to Tallahassee and to testify against this bill and its final Senate hearing. I was towards the end silenced because they um, said, oh, we had too many speakers. We're not going to have anyone else speak or testify. And that is something that, you know, really bothered me because I came all the way this way to tell them how this is hurting me, how this is hurting my family. And then they said, we don't care. And, you know, a lot of people in that room walked in and, um, it ended up passing in that committee and walked in knowing how they were going to vote. And they didn't really listen to people. And I was able to stand outside the Senate chamber and give my speech that I had written before and, you know, post it on social media and get a bit of attraction for that. And um, in the long run, it really ended up reaching more people that way. But seeing these people who just either don't care or don't know people in the queer community shows like the importance of empathy. And just I feel like if People in this world, and especially lawmakers and elected officials, had a little bit more empathy, the world would be a, a better place. Because, you know, kids just want to be themselves. My little brother just wants to go to the bathroom in school without it being an issue. He just wants to, you know, join the dance team without people saying it's a big deal that it's a, a boy wearing the, the girl out or the girl stereotypical outfit. And um, he just wants to be happy. He just wants to do his own thing. And I don't understand why people are so upset by that or that bothers them so much. Yeah. And I think what's frustrating too, thinking about the way language is used in these bills, you know, to, for a lot of the times for it to be intentionally vague in order to, you know, uh, either get it passed um, or, or not get struck down. Um, but I think also to create 
fear, right? Not knowing if this qualifies as something that is now sort of breaking the law against this bill or not, you know, to sort of create that sort of fear and confusion through the use of language, right, in a rhetorical sense is something that um, is kind of, for me, from what I've noticed, inherent in a lot of this type of legislation that, you know, tries to get passed or in some cases does ultimately get passed. So I'm curious, what are the um, sort of counter strategies to that, you know, as as an activist, as someone who, who speaks their mind, as someone who works with others to, you know, to try and get these types of bills defeated uh, or to speak out against them? Um, what's the what's the strategy to counteract that sort of vague language that's meant to to develop fear in, in people? Yeah. So looking at that language and seeing how it hurts so many people within my writing and within the, all the activism work, I think I try to do the opposite and specifically tackle ideas or specifically state things in a way to address people and make them see that how this is hurting people. And especially looking at the vague language and saying, we don't know how this is going to affect, you know, people like my brother, people all over because one person's interpretation isn't the same as the other. And being so specific in what you say, I think is so important in policymaking and in storytelling. And just that's how you get your point across. That's how you make people see and believe what you're telling them. To further that idea of rhetorical listening, um, in particular, when you're in territory that prides itself on maybe double speak or intentional vagueness. I notice, um, of course, this is a podcast, people can't see us, but you are wearing a shirt that's endorsing a particular candidate. And I noticed you have some pins on your bag that are, um, I think it's actually, is it the same candidate or a different candidate? Oh, it's the same candidate. And okay. I also have like, you know, really liberal ones on there too. So as someone who is engaged in a a future career that would be um, acting to provide the words for particular people. And, you know, you're choosing to take time away from your classes to go and support, you know, um, fight against legislation or support other legislation. As a rhetorical listener, what are you looking for? What, What skills are you bringing that you have learned to vet the candidates that you choose to to invest your time and energy into? Yeah, so um, I definitely like to get face to face with them too, if, especially if I'm working on a campaign. Um, you know, you have that personal connection of working with someone and it's very easy to tell when someone's genuine when you're talking to them and when you see their actions and when they're not, when they're just saying things. And um, for the particular candidate that uh, that's on my backpack and in my shirt, um, Maxwell Frost, he was the national director for um, March for Our Lives when I worked with them. He's 25 years old and he's running for Congress as the first Gen Z candidate. And um, he's someone who not only a friend, but a person I trust, a person that I've worked with. And I can fiercely defend him and say that what he says, for the most part, is exactly what I believe. And I know that he's going to be fighting for other people like us and um, out there and just seeing looking at candidates' actions, like something Max and um, I was part of a group with him that we went up and um, with Planned Parenthood on a bus to, um, you know, it was hard hours, it was in the middle of the week to go and um, speak out against the 15-week abortion ban. And seeing things like that and seeing candidates do different things like that is showing they put their, um, you know, put their money where their mouth is. They Actions speak louder than words. And he, people and other candidates, I like to see change. And I like to see them 
already working towards this and how this issues affect them or how they have changed this issue and want to rather than just saying, oh, I care about this. And it's almost like how, why? Show me that you care about it without just telling me do you do to get elected. If there's a candidate that you have not had the chance to work with, are there any strategies in terms of the way that you would approach listening to their speech? Like if you were just sitting in session and listening to a variety of different, um, you know, political either elected officials or candidates, like what what rhetorical strategies would you use in terms of vetting, you know, maybe even for the next um, presidential campaign? What what how would what would you bring to the table in terms of your skills that you've developed in our courses here in vetting these candidates? Yeah, so definitely looking and staying in touch with the news and everything, looking at their social media accounts, looking at their past policies or um, past actions that they've had and seeing how that matches up with what they're saying and what they're saying in these speeches and these ads and kind of like saying, okay, you said this, show me how you're doing that. And I think um, especially, you know, with the president and a lot of the the current things that he said, and I I worked on, um, I was part of the Biden campaign in the local chapters and um, a lot of the things he promised and that I really... um, worked hard to get him elected for and seeing that he's not doing anymore and that he's especially gun violence is something that's taken a backseat. And that's something that really bothers me. And I look when I um, before I vote or support a candidate and I say, OK, if you've been in office before, let me look at your policies. Let me do the research and see what you have done and how it matches up with what you're telling me. OK. Thank you so much for being here. We, we are closing in on, on our time for this episode, um, but I do have a, a question I was thinking of in all your, you know, now years of experience being an activist and, and, and writing and, and you know, writing for, for social change, not just the class, but actually writing for social change as well, which I think is, is great. Um, I'm just curious, what do you think it is that that sustains you over a period of time? So when I think about you know people who who have a passion to to want to change things, um, what are some of the things that either keep you going or things that you do to stay healthy enough to keep going? Um, you know through everything that's kind of that that continues to go on and and continues to be a struggle. So you know can you talk can you maybe reflect a little bit about what that's been for you or you know maybe think of some advice for people who do want to get involved what are what are some of the, the key things to kind of keep in mind to to be able to to sustain that that kind of energy and activism yeah so i think one thing to keep in mind is this is exhausting work and it's not always rewarding and it really rarely is especially when you're fighting for things like um these issues at this time and um like political turmoil and um really just remembering to take a break sometimes sometimes i try to you know go everywhere and and speak at this protest and go this and no sometimes I have to be like Olivia you cannot be at three places in one time take a break you're overworked you're overwhelmed you're just gonna you know stay home today and I I don't do that a lot but I do try to take that um, easy and you know even sometimes I try not to get upset over everything that I can't do and you know, that doesn't always work out. Sometimes I'll end up calling my mom, you know, crying over the fact that this bill got passed and I worked so hard to stop it. And I tried to do everything I could to stop it. And it's it's exhausting. And I think so many of our lawmakers that are champions up in, you know, Tallahassee and um, D.C. fighting for these things, it's so hard to see something you worked so hard for and um, put all your energy into not turn out the way you want it. And the thing to remember is even just fighting and being that voice and you know, maybe if even if you're not as involved in this work, just showing up at that protest, so showing support, you're doing 
a huge thing and it affects more people and more things than you than you even realize. So keep in mind too, this is a long term fight. It's hard. It's uphill. Um, you know, take care of yourself, but don't stop because of some setbacks because that never created change. If you look at all the movements in history, they weren't won overnight. Um, with everything, it's it's an uphill, long battle. And if you care about it enough, you'll keep going despite the setbacks. Some would argue that character is actually developed by how well you can accept defeat as well as how well you can accept a, a win. So I think that is an important lesson. Um, I have one last question, and this comes from a conversation I actually had with Professor Pompos Mansfield yesterday. She talks a lot about writing process, and I know we touched on this a little bit, but when you're writing an op-ed, and this is something that is just you know purely coming from your point of view, how do you know when you're done? Oh, that's definitely a hard question. I think with op-eds, and especially when I'm submitting to um, certain publications, there's a word limit. Okay. So I'll write everything, and then I'll be like, I just wrote a thousand words. They only let me put seven hundred. I need to cut this down. And I try to go through and you know take out some of the more trivial things or um, change words to get them shorter. Those kind of thing. And but I think when there's no word limit, it, it's harder because you don't want to drag on forever, and especially when it's something you care about. And you kind of just have to be like, all right, this is where it is. And I think in writing, any writer can say it's never done. Even people who have published books say, oh, it could always be better. And that's, I think, so hard And as a writer to be like, nope, I just need to stop. If I do this anymore, it's going to keep changing. I just need to stop and, you know, submit it, see how it goes. And from there, just keep on working and just, you know, trust yourself. Okay. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for being here today and so taking much. the time to speak with us. It was very illuminating, and we wish you all the best on your future academic and political and personal endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening.